listening to the Living Room North Living Room North podcast. We are in this series called Bounce Back. This series called Bounce Back, where we have been talking about mental health, emotional health, emotional resilience, and what it looks like to get back up when life knocks you down. And last week, my friend Lauren, she came and talked to us. She kicked us off with an incredible message. She talked a little bit about anxiety. And one thing that Lauren said last week that I just wanna reiterate this week is we're talking about mental and emotional health at a broad view, okay? And so this is gonna be different for every person in the room. Uh, Some of these things are gonna be generic to everyone, but for some people in the room, there's gonna be a different level for you. And so just know that right out of the gate. Uh, Know that our team and our church is here to help and offer resources wherever you are on the spectrum of navigating your mental and emotional health. Uh, But as I've been thinking about mental health, emotional health, emotional regulation, something I've learned recently is that emotional regulation is not something that we're just born with. Like it's not innate when we come out of the womb. And the way that I know this is because as many of you have heard and know, I have a one and a half year old son. Uh, His name is Owen. He is a toddler. He's full toddler. He's a lot of fun, but he has minimal emotional regulation, like very minimal emotional regulation. Uh, For example, Yesterday, I was getting ready for work. We're getting ready for him to go to daycare. We're in my bathroom. We have lots of toys set up in the bathroom for him to play with in the morning. So many options for this child. But he decides to pull my deodorant off the counter. We're in that phase where he can reach on the counter, pull things off. It's a beautiful thing. And he pulls off the deodorant, and he is in this phase where everything he plays with is like a pretend phone. So everything he picks up, which is kind of sad, but he picks up this deodorant and he can't quite say hello. So he he picks it up. He says, whoa, (laughs) bye, and puts it back down over and over and over. There's no conversation, just whoa, bye. And that's all that he has to say on the phone every time. And so he's doing this in the bathroom. It's so sweet. I love it. But then it's time to go. Like we got to get out of the house. We have to put our clothes on. I got to go to work. He's got to go to what we call school, which is his, his daycare. And so I'm like, hey, buddy, like, are you ready to go to school? He says, mm, no. I'm like, okay, well, we got to go to school. So um, can I have the deodorant back? Like I offer him a pretend phone. He says, mm, no. So I'm like, okay, buddy, we have to put the deodorant, like we're gonna leave this, we gotta go to school, it's gonna be fine, I promise, I know you love this, but we gotta go. And so I sadly have to pull this from his grip, which is like a death grip on the deodorant. And I take it from him and immediately, like in the floor, flailing, he's screaming at an octave I did not know existed before I became a parent. He is having a full blown meltdown over deodorant that he pretends is a phone. And I realized in that moment that emotional regulation is a good thing, but it is a thing that comes to us with time, that it's not something that we have as two-year-olds. And luckily for us, as we grow up, as we get older, we realize that we don't have to like throw ourselves in the floor and pitch a fit every time we don't get what we want. We grow in this emotional regulation skill. But there is a downside to that, and that's that at some points, we can almost regulate emotions out of the picture entirely. 
Like if you think about this, uh, if you're passing someone at work or uh, on campus or just a friend and you're just kind of on the move and somebody says, hey, how are you? How do you respond? Good, fine, good, how are you? And you just keep moving. Like our emotional regulation has to some extent almost told us in some ways to have no emotion, that we just kind of get emotion out of the picture. We don't stop in the moment to be like, well, actually, let me tell you, here's the 10 things I felt today. Like I was good this morning and then like I got a flat tire, so then I wasn't good. But then this happened and then we don't, we just say, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm good. And that's kind of where we fall in this spectrum with emotions a lot of the time. But what I've begun to recognize is that when it comes to things that we experience physically, we're quick to go and figure them out. We're, fi- we're quick to go and see a doctor, to go get the help that we need, to take care of it, to get medication. But when we experience things emotionally, we don't do that. We do something else instead. I've experienced a lot of physical injuries in my lifetime, but there's one nasty one in particular that comes to mind. Uh, When I was in third grade, I think about eight years old, I was in my mom's bedroom. Uh, She had this little footstool, probably about this big, like a square, and it was about four inches off the ground. It had four legs, four metal legs, and each peg was like about this big around, okay? You following, you're like, where's the story going? It It has, it's going somewhere, I promise. And so eight-year-old me, I loved to turn this footstool up on the side and balance on it. Not a great idea, but that was something that I loved to do. And I would do this over and over and over again, kind of like Owen with the phone deodorant. And I was in my mom's room on this one day, and I'm doing it. I've done it a million times, but in, on this day, I mess up big time. And the footstool flips over. I fall on top of it and immediately searing pain. But I think, oh, this is just like when you stub your toe and you think like my toe has definitely fallen off, but you know it's okay. Like, I think it's that kind of pain. Like this really hurts, but it's fine. But my mom comes over and she rolls up my pant leg to find on this knee, my left knee, a massive gash under my kneecap. Like it is split wide open. And so my mom does all the mom things. She's like getting me in the car. My dad wasn't there, so she's calling my aunt for help. She's getting, you know, my health insurance card, all the things. We get in the car and I start to panic because I hate needles. Like anybody hate needles? Anybody with me in the room? Yes. Um, I do not do well with blood, with anything medical, but especially with needles. Like I had a child a few years ago, but I freak the freak out when I have to get a flu shot every year. I hate needles so much. And so eight-year-old me is in the back seat of this car thinking about the fact that I might have to get stitches. And that feels like a shot times like a thousand, like so much needles. And so I'm like, mom, mom, listen, I think it's gonna be fine. Like, let's just go home. Like, I'll sleep it off. Let's check it out in the morning. Like, we do not need to go to the hospital. Like, mom, Neosporin, it's amazing. Like, let's put Neosporin on and I'll put on a big Band-Aid. Like, please, can we go and look at it tomorrow? I promise it's fine. And my mom, thank God, is an adult and she does not listen to me. And she takes me to the ER where I got 20 stitches in my leg that day. Yeah, thank God. Thank you, mom. Um, But uh, we get to the ER and I get these stitches and thankfully for me, because 
My mom did what was medically necessary. There was no infection, no long-term damage to my leg. I do still have a scar. I'll show it to you later if you want to come ask me about it. But my mom, she took care of me in that moment. She did what she knew was needed. And what I see in that is that when we experience physical injury, we're quick to seek help and healing. Right? Like when we experience something physically, when we break an arm or a leg, we're not like eight-year-old me. We don't go, oh, it's fine, rub some dirt on it, like sleep on it. No, we go and get the help and healing that we need. But when it comes to emotional injury, we're quick to downplay or diminish. Right? Like when it comes to the things that we experience emotionally, we do say things to ourselves like, oh, it's fine. I just need to move on. Like, it didn't actually hurt me. I'm over it. I'll just distract myself. But the reality is everybody in this room, all of us, we've experienced some level of emotional injury in our lifetime. Injuries like loneliness, like shame, rejection, failure. We've all experienced some level of emotional injury. Maybe for you, you've walked through something traumatic in your life a tragedy or some, some kind of trauma that you witnessed as a child and the adults around you, they didn't really help you process. They just kind of expected you to move on and, and forget about it and keep on living your life. Maybe for some of you in the room, you've experienced rejection or felt left out or been bullied in the past. And although you would like to not admit it, those words said about you or to you, they still haunt you to this day. They, they keep coming up. Maybe you've been in a relationship where you found a sense of security and belonging, but when that relationship came to an end, you experienced isolation like never before. And you had some really dark days in the aftermath, but you just figured, I just got to brush myself off and keep going and keep dating. Like you just kept moving. Or maybe for you, you dreamt of one college your whole life. And your friends, their acceptance letters started to roll in and, and you didn't get one. And the embarrassment and failure in that weighed on you far more heavily than you were willing to admit. And maybe none of those resonate for you and, and you're like, actually, Chelsea, there's, I, I don't know of an emotional injury in my life and that's okay. Maybe it would be easier to see it in a different story, in someone else's story. And luckily for us, there's a story in our New Testament about a woman who is just like us. A woman who has experienced emotional injury, but who would do anything to cover it up, to dismiss it, to hide it. This woman is the woman that we know as the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well that we find in the account of John. And maybe you've heard this story before, but tonight, I want you to listen for something different. I want you to pay attention to the dialogue and the flow of the conversation and how Jesus engages with this woman and how she responds to him. We're going to read it together. It's, it's a little bit lengthy, um, but I'm going to give you some context along the way, so just stick with me. This is the account in John 4. It says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, important piece of context here. 
a well in this culture would be really important because this is where people would go and draw water to drink and to bathe and to clean things. But an important piece to note is that the role of a woman would typically be the person to go and draw water. And so women would go in groups for safety to the well, and they would go early in the morning so they could beat the heat of the day. So they could get out and take care of this task before it was way too hot. And so what we learn here is when Jesus is at the well, it's about noon, it's likely that no one else is there. Like Jesus is at the well solo. It goes on. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, another piece of context that we see here, first of all, this woman shows up in the middle of the day by herself. And like I said, that would have been bizarre. Like, totally abnormal for this to happen, but here she is alone at the well in the heat of the day. And, and she makes a point that's pretty important to us. She says, hey, Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. These two groups of people do not associate with each other. Like, they really dislike each other. They despise each other. They look down on each other. And so she's like, why are you talking to me? And not only that, she says, a Samaritan woman. It would have been really strange for a Jewish man to be speaking to a Samaritan man, but for a Jewish man to be speaking to a Samaritan woman would have been crazy, like just out of this world. And it goes on. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Now, here is the first part in the dialogue that I want you to pay attention to. Jesus is trying to take this woman into deeper conversation. He says, hey, there is a living water that is available to you. He's trying to speak to her soul. But she brings the conversation back to the surface level. She's almost mocking Jesus. She's like, you don't even have anything to draw water with. Like, where are we going to get this magical water? She is not going there with him. But he goes on. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And we see the dialogue again. Jesus is trying to take her into deeper conversation. He's trying to speak to her heart. And she's again almost mocking, like, yeah, actually, I would love to never come to this well again. It's hot out here. I'm by myself. Like, I don't want to come here. I love the living water, please and thank you. Like, He tries to go deep with her and she brings it surface level. It continues. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. 
Now, this is the part of the story that most of us are, are maybe familiar with. And we see it happen again. You see, when Jesus sat down at the well that day, he knew who was coming. He knew that this woman would show up and he knew her story already. And he gives her a moment to be real with him. He invites her in. He says, hey, go call your husband. And he knows full well what's on the other side of that. But rather than addressing what's really going on in her life, she decides to cover it up. She hides. She denies. She says, I have no husband. And isn't this just like us? Like when someone says to you, hey, are you okay? Or what's going on? And we're like, oh, I'm good. Like, everything's fine, totally good. Like, that mess in my life, nope, you don't see that. That thing going on, it doesn't affect me. I'm fine. That's what this woman is doing in this moment. She's almost like brushing Jesus off. Like, she's like, I don't even want to be in this conversation. She's trying to get out of it as quickly as she can. She then says, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Again, she's like, okay, cool. You knew everything about me. I've never met you before. Not going to talk about that. Maybe you're a prophet, but we're different. Like the Jews do this. The Samaritans do this. We're different. Again, she's trying to bring the conversation to anything surface level to avoid the reality of what's going on inside. She keeps on brushing off the conversation, and I know that you know what this is like. Like for me, this is at the gym. Ladies, you know what I mean. When a dude approaches you in the gym and you're like, ah, yep, you got the weight. I'm putting my AirPod in and going the other direction. Like we have these moments in life where we're just like, I'm just brushing that conversation off. I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk about it. That's what she's doing with Jesus here. And this is where we're going to land. This is a few verses later. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am he. You see, the woman at the well, she wanted to talk about anything on the surface level that she possibly could. While Jesus is calling her into deeper conversation the whole time. As they sit by a well that is incredibly deep, she says it herself, he's trying to get to the depth of her heart. He's going straight to the core of her pain and her sin. And when he calls out her past, her emotional injuries are on full display. I don't know what emotional injuries this woman had, but I would imagine if you have had five husbands, there is some emotional injury. Because I know many of us in the room have probably not had five uh, committed relationships, five serious relationships, but if we had, I would bet there would be injury like heartbreak, like broken trust, like loneliness. And, and not only has she been in five marriages, but she also would be an outcast in society. Like that is why she's at the well in the middle of the day, because she knows that the other women would judge her. She wants to be alone. She's on the fringes. And with that, I would imagine there was emotional injury. I would imagine there was shame. 
all kinds of things for this woman. When Jesus calls out her past, her emotional injuries are on full display. She's fully exposed. There's no more mask. But then Jesus says, I am he. I am the Messiah. And what this would have meant for this woman in this moment, the Samaritan woman, the Messiah would have been to her the Savior of God who was coming to restore and redeem all things. So Jesus says, hey, Samaritan woman, I see you. I know your story. I know the injury. I see it all. It's exposed. There's no hiding from me, but I'm here now. I'm here to help and restore and redeem. And the same is true for us. When we are fully exposed, when our masks are taken off and our emotional injuries are seen for what they are, that is when we can begin to move toward emotional health. It's not until we're willing to really look inward and see what's in there and peel back the layers and address it It's not until we've seen where we've been and where we are that we can move forward in health. Because the reality is, when we resist, the injury persists. When we resist the injury we've sustained, it persists. Let's go back to my my stitches for a minute. If my mom had listened to my resistance, if she'd turned the car around and let me lay in bed with a split open wide knee, I for sure would have gotten an infection in my leg, and worst case scenario, I would have lost my leg all together. You see, resistance and resolution, they're opposites. And when we resist these things internally, they don't just go away. When we decide that we're just gonna bypass that emotion, we're just gonna ignore it, we're gonna pretend it didn't happen, it circulates and it festers, and eventually it comes back up in ways that we don't love. And so for us tonight, if we do want to move toward emotional healing, we've got to stop avoiding our injury and we've got to move toward acknowledging it. We've got to move toward naming it, speaking it out loud, sharing it with someone that we love and trust. And as we acknowledge it, we begin to accept it as a part of our story, as a part of of who we are, as a part of how We've got to where we are, and as we accept it, we can move toward healing. For many of us in the room, we've heard heard the terminology trauma dumping, and maybe you're like, wow, I'm about to go do that in my small group. That's not what I'm telling you to do. But what I've learned recently as I've sat with a counselor who helped us with this content is that trauma dumping maybe isn't the best thing, but that processing your trauma is that processing your trauma with someone that you love and trust, someone that is for you is so much better than simply dumping it and walking away because processing it is a journey. You see, when you process your emotional injuries, a few awesome things happen. You find the root cause. You figure out what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. You make stronger connections. This is what some of us know is trauma bonding. We make these connections and vulnerability when we share the things inside of us. And you build emotional resilience. What my son does not really have, 
We build this resilience where we learn to cope in healthy ways. We learn to say things out loud. We learn to take steps toward healing. We learn healthy coping mechanisms. And for me, I know the past uh, eight months of my life, I have been navigating what an emotional injury looks like. If I'm honest, uh, about eight months ago, somewhere in there, I started experiencing something that was very new to me. I started having nightmares where I was like waking up in the middle of the night, sweaty with fear, my heart racing. I was having a hard time catching my breath and I really didn't know why. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. My Apple Watch told me that my resting heart rate was like elevating over time. And I'm like, what is going on with me? And so finally I decided I could not go this alone. That was not working out for me. And so I decided to start seeing a counselor. And this counselor was incredibly helpful in helping me navigate the emotional injury. And what I realized in this, and, and some of you have heard this part of my story before, is I needed to peel back some of the layers in my story. And when I was a kid, my parents, they weren't super uh, present. My dad spent a lot of time out of my home working and my mom was battling bipolar disorder and substance addiction and, and abuse. And so at a young age, I experienced some emotional injuries just from the circumstances of my life. And in those emotional injuries, I created some automatic negative thoughts. He, nope, Lauren, I was about to say Heath. Lauren talked about these last week, our automatic negative thoughts. And for me, my counselor helped me put words to these, and this is what they sound like. I'm not safe, and I am alone. For me, putting words to these automatic negative thoughts was so insightful because I realized that so much of what I was feeling and all of the things I was doing, they were through this lens that I'm not safe and I'm alone. But I, like the Samaritan woman, I was resisting. Like when the anxiety would start to bubble up or the fear would bubble up, I would do whatever I could to just like run from it, to hide from it to distract myself, to pretend it didn't exist. And the moment I put these words to it and I leaned in, it changed. My counselor helped me understand that when we resist, it persists. So if I could just embrace the thoughts as they came, as just thoughts, then I could move forward in healing. And one of the ways that I've done this and that I've loved is through this thing called breath prayer. It's super simple, an incredible thing. Uh, many counselors will tell you the, uh, the power of breathing when dealing with anxiety. And so a breath prayer is when you match intentional breathing with a simple prayer. And for me, it looks something like this. I would breathe in for four seconds, hold my breath for four seconds, and breathe out for four seconds. And if you try this, the longer you do this, your number might go up and up. Like it might turn into a 555, 666 doesn't feel great. So maybe like a 777. As you practice this, you can do it for longer, but I, I would breathe in for four seconds and I would match a simple prayer with it. On my breath in, it might sound like with Jesus. And on my breath out, it might sound like I'm safe. And I would walk around my neighborhood or walk around a parking lot and I would literally practice this. And it has been 
transformative for me. And I know that sounds silly, but this small practice of seeing a counselor, of acknowledging my injury, of accepting it and moving forward with some healthy coping mechanisms, it has been a game changer. Because when we do this breath prayer, it it re-regulates our nervous system. It tells my body that I'm okay. And in the prayer, it tells my heart and my mind what is true. But here's the reality for everybody in the room. And I said this at the top, and I really want you to hear me say it now. Many of us need help identifying the injury in our life. Many of us need help figuring out what this looks like for us and what the best next step is. And some of you, maybe you heard about Renew last week. That's a one-on-one spiritual mentoring that we offer through the church that helps us replace some of our automatic negative thoughts with the truth of what God has said. And if you have been thinking about it, you're on the fence, I want you to sign up for that tonight because I did it a few years ago and it is incredible. But for some of you in the room, it may be time to call a professional. Just like my mom knew with my leg, it might be time to call a professional, to seek a counselor or a psychiatrist, to figure out what's the the best possible journey for you because every journey is different. And what's great about our church is that we have a network of counselors, of psychiatrists in the area that we vetted that are incredible, that we could, we could pass off their names and help financially. And so as you go to your small groups tonight, you're going to see a, a, a QR code in your room for, for Renew or for a counseling referral. And I would highly encourage that you check that out. If something tonight is like, ah, there's something that I need to process, I would love for you to scan that QR code. I wonder tonight, as we wrap up, how many of us in the room are hiding in plain sight? How many of us are suffering in silence? We're carrying something that only we know about. Like at the woman at the well, we would do anything we could to to deny or dismiss these injuries. What I love about that story is that Jesus sat there waiting for her. He sat there knowing that she would come because he wanted to get to her heart, to get to the injury and to offer healing. And I wonder if tonight he is sitting there waiting for you. I believe that's true for somebody in this room. And if that is you and you need to have a conversation tonight, I would love for you to connect with a small group leader or somebody on my team and we could help you figure out those next steps.